This is Karen Griffin introducing the Space to Be podcast on people, performance, leadership, and love. Conversations with leaders, practitioners, experts, and authors about the world of work in the 21st century. I'm delighted to interview Hugh Hawthorne, an employee experience specialist and founder of PeopleNav. Hugh partners with several global consultancies and works with numerous businesses using the application of data science to deliver evidence-based solutions to people's strategy. He is supported by his academic background in both psychology and neuroscience. Hello, Hugh, how are you doing? I'm very well, Karen. Thank you for having me here today. You're, you're, you're welcome. So um, this is the first time you've visited our podcast and you've been introduced to us by our mutual colleague. That's right. Very excited to be here. So shall we start with your backstory? What brought you to your passion of people analytics? Sure. So um, I actually originally started out having no desire to go into HR or, or in people analytics at all. I was originally on a career path to be a clinical neuropsychologist, of all things. Um, and as part of funding my studies for that, I ended up with a lot of um, ad hoc research and admin jobs at various psychiatric hospitals in South London. And then one day I got a call from the agency who would place me and they said, We've had an unusual request from an HR consultancy who I think could do with the type of skills that you've got in terms of data and Excel and analysis. Uh, would you be interested? And I said, sure, I don't know anything about HR, uh, but let me go along and have a look and see if I can help. Um, so I went to this consultancy and they asked me to help them uh, process thousands and thousands of uh, bits of data that they had collected in an employee survey at one of their clients. Um, and I didn't really know what I was looking at. I brought together some slides to sort of show results across different business units from what I could make sense of. And I remember hearing that the CEO was looking at the results from this survey and he made a comment about how his business units with higher satisfaction amongst his employees were also the more successful financially. And then he says, I'm really interested to know what is it that we might be doing in those business units? Mm -hmm. And I think for me, Karen, a light bulb just went off. I was like, there is so much we could go away and look at now if, yeah. if he wants to understand what's going on in those and that. And then I never really looked back. That just that hooked me from that point onwards. Fantastic. So in what sorts of ways are businesses most usefully connecting with people analytics? And what kind of outcomes are being delivered? So I would say the ways that you most usefully connect with people analytics is, I mean, really it's limitless. And I think the best way to perhaps answer that, Karen, is to think of the employee life cycle. And let's go to the very beginning, right? So we're thinking of talent acquisition and recruitment. We can use people analytics to study where we get our most successful hires from, the people who are good fits into the organization, who stay with us, uh, perform with us, drive our sales, we can look back and, and, and discover which channel it was that we got that person and, and redirect our investments there so it becomes more effective. Or we could look to the other side of the employee lifecycle. We look at re retention. When people exit, we can start to build up a profile of the reasons people leave. And we yep. can start building predictive models that 
warn us about um, the types of characteristics or situations where people might leave and act on that. And there are other things we can look at. We can enhance engagement. We can design organizations that foster innovation and collaboration because we can run network analysis. We can improve health and well-being by running analytics into things that reduce absenteeism and reduce sickness. Uh, we can improve learning and development by looking at the effectiveness of training programs. We can build tailored training for individuals or groups based on studying um, analysis into their needs. We can improve on rewards and benefits and optimize them and, and even leadership development. So really analytics can, can improve almost any aspect of people or HR management. Excellent. I know you're a lover of storytelling, Hugh. So if you were to pick two stories that showcased the power of some of what you've just been talking about, what would they be? So there's quite a few stories I can pick on. And if it's OK with you, I'm going to pick one that's actually quite dated, which I like to use when I'm introducing people um, who are new to this topic. And then I'll use one that's quite current that I'm working on at right. the moment. Um, so the first one comes from um, actually at the time of the global financial crisis around 2007, 2008. And it relates to a high tech manufacturer um, in aerospace. And at the time, the economy is obviously going through a downturn. People are losing their jobs. But this particular manufacturer in some way is protected because of the nature of um, aviation. In fact, orders for planes and components, it's quite, to use a pun, long haul. So yeah. they are protected a little bit. <laughs> um, but what they found, right, so we've got an economic uh, situation that's in downturn and people are losing their jobs, is they were hiring people. And yet their attrition rate was beginning to reach um, figures of about 30 percent. Almost one in three people were leaving and they couldn't intellectually understand that. Why, why were people leaving us if, if, you know, the ability to get a job elsewhere was probably uh, quite difficult to do? Yeah. Um, they didn't have things like exit interviews or employee surveys, so they didn't really have a lot of um, uh, information they could draw. And this was in the US and a type of employment contract. People could literally up and leave um, if they wanted to on the same day. Yep. Now, someone, someone who, who wasn't in HR had the idea of, well, what information do we have on these people? And can we see if there is anything in that that might tell us about what's going on? So what they did have was a really basic database on their people. And Karen, I'm going to invite you to try and solve this little problem. Oh, OK. So, so, <laughs> <on air. laughs> we'll see how you do. I've asked hundreds of people of this, so we'll see how you compare to to, to others I've asked. Um so the information they had on their people, you can imagine just a, a simple database, obviously with their name, their address, date of birth, uh, with the gender, they have the salary they were on, uh, how many years experience, length of service and how many sick, sick days they had had. Now, one of those things, I, I will give you a helping hand, one of those things was a predictor of um, making people leave or causing them to leave. Yeah. Which one do you think it was? Sick days. Sick days. Okay, tell me why you think it was sick days. Lower engagement. Right. So people taking time off, beginning to become disengaged, and then they they want to quit and leave the organisation. Yeah. Potentially, that would be my immediate response. But then there could be something about age and the type of work or the type of sector. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> so would you believe it was actually their address? No. Yes. Go on, tell me more. So what was going on is the people who lived, they calculated it down to a distance. People who lived more than 12 miles yep. 
from their place of work had a 92% chance of leaving within two years. And the reason is because their commute started to be over 45 minutes long. And so initially in this downturn, you might take that work, but eventually over time, it begins to grate that you're investing so much of your day-to-day time just getting to and from work. Yeah. And so what they did in response to this is you redesign your um, interview process. You obviously can't discriminate against people based on where they live, but you can ask questions in the interview about have you considered the impact of commuting this distance, doing that every day. And sure enough, it helped them filter out people who, you know, maybe hadn't thought about that. And so the rates of attrition began to fall down because they had done one of the simplest analytics, which is look at address. Right. That's a great story. Isn't it? So have you got another one for us? I do. And I actually wanted to to move us on to something that um, his name's Professor Jeff Higgins. He's he's the Professor of People Analytics at the Southern uh, California University. And he makes a comment that in HR, we are fearful of talking about finance or the language of business. So... If we want good people analytics outcome, we need to get more confident about talking about um, business related uh, metrics like financial reporting. So the story I want to tell you actually comes from a retailer I'm working with at the moment. They employ 25,000 people. Mm-hmm. So it's about the size of a small town, about 300 different stores. And I get involved with advising their exec team on insights from their people listening programs and databases that they have. Yeah. And one of the things I discovered um, last year was about one in three of their employees are age 20 or below. And that's one of the highest proportions of that age group. It, you know, when you think of the sort of workforce, most people are, are, are older than that. Yes. And it's yes. really retail and hospitality where we have this massive group of under 20 year olds, which I think often uh, get forgotten about. Um, so that's 8,000 people. And what we know about these people is it gets about attrition. There's a 50% chance they'll leave within 12 months. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see this play out in the attrition rates of different stores. So you look at the hiring practices of some store managers and where they're really going for the younger people, their attrition rates um, are something ridiculous, 60, 70, 80% um, because they've got these volatile young people in their stores. And we spoke to some of these store managers, trying to sort of understand what's going on here. Why, why are you going for this group? And almost naively, they said things to us, well, they're sort of cheap fodder because, you know, they're not really committed to, to us. We're not committed to them. We know that they're going to go somewhere else. They don't want a career in retail. They will leave. And it's just easy to bring them in. We don't have to really look after them. And then they leave and we replace them. My word. It's horrible, isn't it? My heart, my heart sort of burns when I hear that. But... um. That's an expensive exercise. Right. They use the word cheap. Mm. And there's a statistic that came out the other day from the Society of Human Resources Management in the US, and it's worked out. And I think this is a conservative figure. The average cost to replace an employee is 4,700 US, which is about three and a half thousand pounds. So let's let's go back to our retailer. Right, eight thousand people are age twenty, and then we're saying four thousand are going to leave in this in this year. So we've got to replace them. Mm-hmm. Um, that that cheap fodder is costing you fourteen million pounds to replace. Yeah, what would you do with fourteen? Right, the power of people analytics, <laughs> applying some logic, logical analysis to some of your um, regular processes. Fab. So. 
is this world just for larger organizations or do you work with smaller organizations as well no it's um it's just as relevant for for, for smaller organizations so there's actually a not-for-profit i work with in um new zealand where i was living for for a while and they, they still work with me over here um, they're a really interesting organisation. So they they were founded out of um, an endowment that was given to them after the selling of a bank. And their role is to make grants into the community um, across the, the northern side of, of, of New Zealand. And they have as an organisational objective to really live out uh, what's known in New Zealand as uh, the Treaty of Waitangi. So this is really honouring the rights of the Maori, the natives of, of, of New Zealand. And one of the things they try to do, um, which is led by the CEO and his his leadership team, is to make use of um, the Maori's language, which is called Toreo. Now, how well this was going had had some mixed results. And um, I worked with them on a project which uh, did some 360s. And I also convinced them to do some psychometric assessment as well. And in the 360, we got some feedback about how effective they were in terms of using Toreo language and bringing it into work um, day to day. And what we found, Karen, is um, the relationship. There was a relationship between using Toreo, using Maori words, and how much of a risk taker you were based on your personality profile. Because if you were, if you were a risk taker, you 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 sort of feared less about making mistakes or, or looking silly. And so you, you kind of took more of those risks and, and tried to speak the language. Now, that insight, we proved it with a with a little regression model. Um, so there we go, we've got the people analytics. And what it enabled us to do was to coach those people who hadn't scored so well on that and say, hey, what you need to do, you just need to learn from these risk takers. And we know that's not your operating space. And we're not asking you to become a risk taker because it's not your natural style. And there's no point trying to be something that you're not. But this is an objective of the organization. You are a senior leader here. You are committed to, to, to delivering on this. So we just need you to be uncomfortable and practice for a little while until it then does become natural and normal for you. And the result of this is that he went back a few months later and sort of one of the most hesitant of um, speakers of, of the Toreo language uh, was now starting meetings with what they call a karakia, which is sort of uh, equivalent to having sort of a prayer before a meeting. So it really can be quite transformational, even for smaller organisations. A lovely story. And um, yeah, so a bit of analysis delivers you an insight and you are able to then recommend a practical change to their training process, which delivered a better outcome. Fantastic. So, so who are the key internal players involved in the creation of these good outcomes? Who do you tend to be working with in organisations, charities, businesses? Um, so the people we work with, uh, it, it's usually driven by a progressive HR director or chief people officer and maybe the CEO as well. You absolutely need them on board to have appetite for this. Um, our research has, has shown that, but also an unnamed source who did work until recently as one of the leaders of people analytics at a US tech giant made the comment that the reason they left is because we didn't have our HRD on board. And so it became like throwing spaghetti at things. It wasn't really sticking because we, we need we need that person to tell us what's what's the problem in the business? What are we trying to do and solve? Yeah, um, that's number one. Um, number two, we need our experts in HR with their domain expertise, if they're in leadership, if they're in OD or reward or engagement, whatever it is that we're looking at. 
we need to work with them. They need to become storytellers. They need to um, really connect their expertise with data points and then put it in a way that we can convince and bring leaders and managers and people on a journey um, with us. I call them the storytellers, but they can literally be any kind of internal specialist or generalist within, within the HR space. So what are the typical challenges and frustrations you come up against in getting your messages across? Um, so that's that's an interesting question, Karen, because this topic of people analytics has, has been around for a while. And we, we did conduct a big piece of research last year uh, with organisations around the world. And we found that a lot of struggling to get the message across and to really get value from it. Yeah. And we, we sort of looked at all the information that we, we were collecting from them and we did a series of interviews with their HR directors and some of their business in, insights teams. And we condensed it down into sort of four real uh, blockers, if you like. Um, so the first one was a lack of coherent strategy for using your people data. Um, and often that comes from a lack of confidence of um, the chief people officer. They don't feel confident themselves in using data. And so they sort of want to avoid and park this topic because they find it difficult to enter into and they, and they would delegate it to a well-meaning data scientist who you know has a passionate geek interest in this topic and to do lots of wonderful things but actually is completely disconnected from what the business needs are so that was number one not really having a coherent strategy for it yeah number two i don't think will be a surprise to anyone um who is uh, listening to this and we don't talk about it enough i think about what's going on in hr it's it's technology and then and what's going on is we have so many platforms in HR doing lots of different things that don't really talk to each other. So you've got your um, applicant tracking system and you've got your learning management software. Then you have an HRIS platform and then you've got an engagement survey platform and then you've got a 360 tool and then someone's providing you leadership assessment. And all these sources of information are separate things and they don't talk. And then you might have payroll and payroll might not even sit in HR. It might be in finance. So how are, we meant to, how are we meant to start creating insight if we have all these different platforms? And Karen, the fascinating thing I found um, going into organisations is, I don't think we admit this enough, and the organisations don't admit this enough themselves, across all those platforms, the headcount of how many people you actually employ is different. There's no consistent <laughs> Bible of truth of how many people we actually employ. So then the HR director has to talk to the head of finance about, well, what's our cost of remuneration going to be? Do you think he trusts the HR director if they can't come up with one consistent number? We're laughing, but I wonder if there's people <laughs> listening to this kind of wincing in their chairs. <laughs> but it's true. We, we can't, we don't try, so we've got this data, we collect it. It's probably a gold mine. We can't connect it. And we don't, you know, there's, there's problems trusting it. Yeah. Um, and then that means that that our, that our people who work in HR, the professionals, um, you know, our, our research actually finds that the data literacy of people in HR is, but through their own admission, is, is not particularly uh, strong. In research by the CIPD here in the UK has, has, has shared that point of view. We, we're not data literate as, as, as sort of specialists in, in this area. And if we want to get good with insight and influencing people, we're going to have to have a look at that. Um, and the final thing that we found, um, Karen, this is very, I think, uh, on trend with what's going on in the world at the moment with AI is the topic of data privacy and ethics. There's, there's almost no development in this space. People haven't really come to a mature 
agreement of how do we use this people data and how do we use it in a way that is for good and that doesn't sort of undermine people's credibility and trust in the organization. And I'm sorry, and I felt like I've been really negative there, but these were the genuine issues that that, that are kind of blocking us with some gold mines of, of making a difference and doing good in the world. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think it's really important to air them because um, if listeners are recognising even two or three of those which are applicable to their organisation, there's some of the blockers to be able to, in being able, to, as you say, to use data analytics to their, to its, to their full um, capacity. So to be able to make more of a positive difference to people, organisations and performance, what would your call to action be, Hugh? And to whom? Uh, so I can be more positive now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I am. I'm really excited for the for the, for the future of this, and, and in terms of what the the call for action would be, um, either what we've talked about so far. Number one is the call to action to the head of HR, to our chief people officers, courageously foster data curiosity in the HR team. Um, get them interested in in things that we could solve or opportunities we we could unleash. Um, I had a client recently, they were in London, I caught up for a drink with them and they were saying they don't feel data confident, but they were really interested to know why we have certain business units that are spending so much on legal fees defending uh, employee grievances. Mm -hmm. And that's the type of question and way we can foster interest in how can we solve this what can we look at how can we make a really compelling business case for, for what we need to do differently and change um a couple of other call to actions um to to people who work with people um we ourselves we need to be courageous we need to take risks and and i think leaning on the professor i, I referred to before is we need to start talking the language of business if we're serious about building great places to work where people can thrive and great leaders. We have to do that through the eyes of the business need and, and through what the business is trying to do, not push out our HR agenda. We have to be with them together on, 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 on their side. Yeah. And we have to make what we're doing unambiguously relevant to business leaders. Um, so you know, often I will go to conferences or I talk to clients and, and I hear buzzwords, I hear diversity, I hear well-being. And I, it's not that I disagree with any of these things. These are wonderful things, but we need to make sure they are meaningful and there's evidence for them. Because once we do that, I think it was um, the social psychologist, uh, Ellen Langer, who discovered if people feel like they found the solution themselves. So if we get leaders thinking that they found um, the insight themselves. They will start making change and behave differently. Um, and finally, I say obsess about user uh, centricity. If you're going to look at people analytics, or you're going to start doing this differently and want to improve on it. Anything that you produce, the content or the, or the channels you're using, if it's a dashboard, a report, or just an email with a statistic in it, obsess about user centricity, make it intuitive, engaging, and action orientated. Um, and final thing, I will say it again, sorry to sound like a broken record, but really develop awareness of ethics, data privacy, and your responsibility around that because it's going to become a big thing. Absolutely. And I can really sense your passion about all of this, Hugh. So it uh, seems like you're the man when it comes to data analytics. <laughs> That's what I hope so. <laughs> so it's been around for a few few years now, and I know we have some uh, prolific uh, speakers on the subject in, in the UK. Um, how... 
have you seen it evolve and where do you envisage this approach going in future years? And you just mentioned one of those things around ethics be, becoming even more and more important. But are there any other, other things you see uh, as changing in the next 10 years? Yeah, so I think what we're going to see now is a big shift. I, 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 I'm convinced the current operating model we have of people analytics in organisations, it, it tends to be this quite stale uh, HR analysts reporting out some figures and some numbers, and maybe we do some dashboards. And now we're trying to get some insights, like you sometimes go to a presentation and uh, data scientists will show you some uh, network neural analysis or regression model that looks very impressive and sounds really interesting, but actually has very limited practical value in the organization. I think this model, and it's not been delivering, and our research shows it's not been delivering, is dated and on its last legs. And I think what we're going to shift towards, because mm -hmm. the technology is now there to do it. In fact, one of my technology partners has just released a new um, like chat GBT assistant in its platform to help do this. I think we're going to see the democratization of of people analytics and it's going to be taken out the hands of people analytics teams and put into the hands of people who actually need it so our, our leaders and managers and that insight they're going to get is not going to be numbers it's going to be real useful people intelligence with actionable suggestions and solutions yeah. in the same way karen if you go to the doctor and you get a blood test what you don't want to know i mean you might want to know it is how many grams of iron you've got in your blood per 100 milliliters. What you need to know is, is this good? Is this bad? And and if it's bad, what do I do to to improve it? You, the, the numbers is kind of almost irrelevant. Yeah, you, so, you, so what? We need to know the exactly, so what. Yeah. Exactly. So that's what's going to, that's the, the shift we're going to take towards. And um, in the industry, it's known as um, prescriptive analytics. So you're being prescribed with a solution. Um and for for our HR teams and HR business partners, uh, the the technology the technology platform I was referring to, what they can already do is they can go in and ask it questions. You can ask, for example, um, who who are my top performers who are most at risk of leaving, who were born in 1983, and then tell me the five top reasons they're thinking of leaving, and it will tell you what this is. So you don't have to do all that data crunching and and and, and mining because the system's doing it and the AI is understanding what you're, you're requesting. Um, so that's that's where we're headed towards. Uh, yeah, gosh, it's, it's a fascinating subject, isn't it? Absolutely. Thank you for your time. I've got one more question for you. Um, and I often ask this question, what is the risk of not using data-driven approaches? Am I allowed to give you a cliche as an answer? Yeah, go on. <laughs> Um, oh, I qualify it a bit. Look, I think if we don't do anything, you're going to get left behind. That's a cliched answer, but I, but I, you know, in 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 all honesty, we're we're on a we're on a bit of a precipice here because with AI loudly knocking at a door, we're probably about to go through a bit of a dot com bubble bursting, and but there will be things that that are useful and do work and will be taken on board by organisations. And I suppose in answer to your question is to think about, do you want to be a leader in this space or are you going to get led by other organisations? And I think that's the risk um, if you if you don't start looking at this and, and taking it forward. Thank you, Hugh. A really useful conversation, full of rich content and uh, delivered in a passionate way. So, so thanks again. Thanks, Karen. And thank you for having me here. Thank you.
Thank you.